Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a uh, family. Number one, uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Allison Duvall. And I'm Kendall Martin. Welcome to week six of our podcast. We're so glad you're here. Hometown is a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the refugee resettlement and welcome ministry of the Episcopal Church. Learn more about us on our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together to read all of Luke and Acts throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at www.goodbookclub.org. Find them on Facebook, The Good Book Club. This week, The Good Book Club takes us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 18, through chapter 22, verse 46. There are so many stories and parables to explore in this section, but one that has always spoken to me is Luke 21, 1-4, The Widow's Might. He looked up and saw rich people putting their coins into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. So, Allison, the story has always really struck me, and I think the first thing that stands out to me is that this woman is both poor and a widow, which, as we know, are two factors that would have put her on the edge of society. You know, she was easily overlooked and disregarded by others, and Jesus and his disciples in the story are watching as the rich people drop in their coins, and we can imagine that they are anxious to be seen putting in their money. But the poor widow who has nothing gives everything she has. And we know two mites is a minuscule amount, but Jesus sees something more. And he sees her heart, the way that she gives so lovingly and freely. And I like to think that even though she has nothing, she believes that she still has something to offer those less fortunate than her. And I think that's what really speaks to me. Whenever I hear this story or, or others like it, I actually always, um, I, I guess this is what it's meant to do, right? It's meant to make you think about your own generosity of spirit. And <laughs> I'm thinking re- about stewardship seasons at my church <laughs> and how I am striving to be generous in spirit and generous in my giving because, um, you know, God has, God has blessed me. So I think, you know, that's what this story is pushing us to think about is how we can give generously from all the abundance and blessings that that God's given us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that this story shows the dignity of every human being that is seen and recognized by God, which Mm -hmm. is something that is so important in these times when we see entire groups being treated as other or 
or less than. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, we all have something to offer. And so whether we're giving with our money or our hearts or our time, we're all bringing gifts to the table. And Mm -hmm. I love the idea that no gift is too small. Like it really does take all of us. And I know I can speak for us when I say in this ministry that we are in at Episcopal Migration Ministries, we are so grateful for every person who shows up with support and heart. And this is a great um, time to mention that part of the way that you and I, of course, have gotten to know, you know, hundreds of people across the church who care so much about the church's ministry of refugee welcome has been through Love God, Love Neighbor, our, our training program. And listeners, you've heard me say this last week, you've heard us say it every week, but our next Love God, Love Neighbor training is May 2nd through 4th in Atlanta, Georgia. We've trained folks from over 20 dioceses. We would love to have you join us and registrations are due tomorrow. So if you're interested and you're just now hearing about it, you know, reach out to us and let us know. We can probably probably squeeze squeeze a few more registrations in past the deadline. But um, please do consider joining us and learning how you can share the gifts that God has given you in our ministry of welcome. As a setup to our interview today with Abdul Kabor, we're going to discuss the history of Afghanistan and the contributing factors that have caused Afghans to resettle in the United States. As we have said on previous episodes, neither of us is a historian nor expert on any particular situation. We will include our sources in the podcast notes and on our website blog. We encourage you to read and learn more about all of the places we discuss. The history that we cover today comes from the Center for Applied Linguistics and PBS.org. Thanks, Kendall. Let's start by getting situated where we are in the world. Afghanistan is a high landlocked country that's bordered on the west by Iran and on the east and the south by Pakistan. The boundaries of Afghanistan, as is the case for so many of current national boundaries, were determined by foreign power interests and on each side cut through land that was occupied by one ethnic group or another. Afghanistan has a long history of domination by foreign conquerors and internal warring factions. It wasn't until the 1700s that Afghanistan was united as a single country. It was during the 19th century that Great Britain attempted to annex Afghanistan, which resulted in three British-Afghan wars. In August of 1919, Afghanistan declared independence. And Afghanistan was one of the first nations to recognize the Soviet government. And this was a relationship that lasted until December 1979, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. It was 1931 when the the government wrote a constitution that established a parliament, left power in the hands of the monarchy, gave judiciary power to religious leaders, and created an economic framework for free enterprise. The Soviets became a major aid and trade partner. In 1973, Prime Minister Daoud Khan seized power, abolished the constitution, and established the Republic of Afghanistan. The People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan seized control of the government then in 1978. Soviets invaded in 1979, and millions of Afghans fled to Pakistan and Iran to escape the Soviet military campaigns against the insurgency. 
The guerrillas had control of much of the countryside and Soviets held the cities. In this time, the U.S. supported the Afghan rebels, providing supplies and weapons into the country via Pakistan. The fight against the Soviets was styled as a jihad or religious war by the Afghan rebels, and it, att it attracted conservative Muslims to the Afghan cause. One of those was Osama bin Laden, who joined the Afghan resistance in 1979. Bin Laden went on to found what was called the Maktab al-Khidamat, or the MAK, which recruited fighters from around the world and aided the resistance to the Soviets. And the Soviet Union withdrew 100,000 troops from May 1988 to February 1989. And once the Soviets left, the United States withdrew as well. But the Civil War continued between guerrilla soldiers and the government. In April of 1992, rebel factions captured Kabul, overthrowing the communist government and establishing the Islamic Republic. Rival rebel groups continued to fight and the Civil War continued. Anarchy ensued, and the rival groups seized anything of value in the country to pay and supply the troops. The situation became so bad within the cities that it became unsafe to venture out into the streets. The Taliban's success during this time was largely due to their popular support, which they gained, as a result of their ability to restore civil order after the preceding years of chaos. The Taliban restored order, however, by imposing extreme interpretations of Islamic law. Only Pakistan, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia recognized the Taliban government. The rest of the world recognized the Rabbani government, even though it controlled very little of the country. In 96, the Taliban provided safe haven to Osama bin Laden. From Afghanistan, bin Laden called for jihad against the U.S. Al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization led by bin Laden, was identified as the organization behind terrorist acts against the U.S., including the attacks of September 11, 2001. In December 2001, after the Taliban government was overthrown, the Afghan interim administration was formed. The Taliban began an insurgency to regain control of Afghanistan. The International Security Force, established by the UN Security Council, and Afghan troops led offensive against the Taliban but did not fully defeat them. A Taliban-led shadow government began to form in other parts of the country in 2009. It wasn't until 2015, so just three years ago, that Taliban forces agreed to a peace talk. The U.S. war in Afghanistan officially ended on December 28th, 2014. Allison, there's so much history here, and this is really just an overview of what are much more complicated relationships and fights for power. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us when we really started to foresee the need for refugee resettlement come out of Afghanistan in the wake of the ongoing conflict? Sure, and and before I do that, I'll just mention for listeners, if you were to look at current statistics about where, what countries are hosting the most refugees, for years, Pakistan has hosted millions, and they've been refugees who have fled Afghanistan. It was in 1996, after the Taliban rose to power, that ethnic minorities and opponents of the Taliban suffered persecution and fled to Pakistan. Since 1999, the U.S. has admitted those refugees who entered Pakistan after 96 
and who are considered to be in special need of protection by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or the UNHCR. These UNHCR cases can be divided into two categories, those that include a male head of household and then others that are classified as women at risk, or WAR cases. Right, and the WAR cases represent nearly two-thirds of the Afghan refugees approved for resettlement since 1999. And this category is largely made up of single women and widows with small children, but it does include other groups, so married women who have been victims of domestic or sexual abuse, women and children who have been economically exploited, such as virtual bonded labor, and aging and ailing women with no support. A large majority of WAR cases have suffered human rights abuses. Two-thirds of refugees in this category are children. According to the UNHCR Global Trends Report, 55% of refugees come from one of three countries, Syria, Afghanistan, and South Sudan. An estimated 2.5 million refugees come from Afghanistan. The numbers are staggering. And Kendall, this reminds me of our um, our first episode where we talked about the Democratic Republic of Congo and how similar so many refugee crises are that the groups that are most vulnerable in these situations are women and children. In addition to vulnerable women and children, another category or way we've seen people from Afghanistan come to the United States is through the Special Immigrant Visa Program, which is also known as the SIV program. Our interview guest today, Abdul Sabor, came to the United States from his native Afghanistan in 2014 through this SIV program. Abdul is simply amazing. He's one of the most generous, kind, and warm people I've, I've ever met. And he's got an amazing life story. He worked as a cultural advisor and instructor for the Counterinsurgency Training Center with the U.S. military. And during his service with the U.S. government in Afghanistan, he was awarded the Superior Civilian Service Award, which is equivalent to the U.S. Army Meritorious Service Medal. Let me do that again. During his service with the U.S. government in Afghanistan, Abdul was awarded the Superior Civilian Service Award, which is equivalent to the U.S. Army Meritorious Service Medal. He was the first Afghan to be certified by USAID as District Civility Framework Instructor, and he is the only Afghan to be awarded honorary graduate status from the Counterinsurgency Leaders Course. He's got many other awards, those are just a few. And since 2014, Abdul has worked for Interfaith Works of CNY in the Center for New Americans program. Abdul helps welcome and support several new families monthly to the city of Syracuse, New York. And there's so much more we could say about Abdul, so we really do encourage you to visit our blog to learn more about Abdul and his life. So without further ado, we're honored to bring you our interview with Abdul Sabor. We are so honored today to welcome Abdul Sabor. Abdul came to the U.S. from his native country of Afghanistan in 2014, where he worked as a culture advisor and instructor for the Counterinsurgency Training Center with the United States Military. Since 2014, Abdul has been working for Interfaith Works of CNY in the Center for New Americans program. Welcome, Abdul. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here, and I'm, I'm excited to, to see you again, Abdul. We've met a few times in this work that we share, and it's great to have you on our podcast. Thank you. 
Yeah, once again, thank you, Kendall, and thank you, uh, Allison, for organizing this, and I'm glad to be part of this. Well, we'd love to hear a little bit about your boyhood home, about your childhood in Afghanistan, and what growing up in Afghanistan was like. Well, you know, I was born in the 1990s in Afghanistan. So uh, you look at the history of Afghanistan itself. Uh, during the 1990s, it was nothing but war, uh, nothing but a stage of life where basically survival mode. Much of the cities that where I grew up, so I was born in the western provinces of Afghanistan, and, I, and then my parents had decided to come to, for economic opportunity, immigrated to uh, Kabul, the capital, for a better life. And then as the war got worse, the civil war, the Taliban regime, and all of that, there was, you know, living in the cities that I lived in Kabul, we never had the opportunity to go see a life beyond our home beyond the little huts that we had, and they were all made out of mud. Uh, there was not much of the things that I recall about the life that there was in Kabul because it was, you know, the city was divided among groups and, uh, and you could not travel as frequently as you wanted to because of the Civil War. But, but it also is just for me, there was only one thing, and that home that we had built for ourselves and my, my parents, who was a taxi, my, my father was a taxi driver at the time, was just the only provider for the family. And we had to just make it through the day every day. And it was basically that survival stage where it, you know, somewhat it always becomes so selfish because when you're in that survival phase, everything becomes sort of by this idea of me and I, because you want to survive. You want to make throughout the day. That's the type of living style or perhaps the lifestyle you have when you're living in that kind of area in, in countries or Afghanistan or particularly in Kabul where I lived, where I grew up. And during your service with the U.S. government in Afghanistan, you were awarded the Superior Civilian Service Award, which for our listeners, um, this award is equivalent to the U.S. Army Meritorious Service Medal. You were also the first Afghan to be certified by USAID as District Stability Framework Instructor. So I'd love for you to tell us more about your time in Afghanistan when you started working with the U.S. military and what exactly you took away from that experience? You know, it's, it's no coincidence, but a lot of Afghans have large families. And I come from a family where I have eight other siblings. Right after graduation of high school, which was in 2000, late 2006, early 2007, you know, due to economic difficulties, I had to join. I had to start getting a job to help out the family, like my brother, like my other two brothers. And this was a few years when the Taliban were kicked out. So I was still very young, a 17-year-old, and uh, had a little bit of English because I did a study. English, a second language in my high school. And so a, for me to get a work working with the United States military was an opportunity because it was perhaps somewhat of in my family's history. My brother was working, my oldest brother was working with the United States military when, when first in 2001, 2002, when the United States came in, uh, my second oldest brother started working. And then it was just an opportunity for me to kind of follow that path. But, you know, as a young man, 17-year-old, uh, when I was thinking about how how should I help? What are the ways that I could help? And obviously, certainly, this was one of the possibilities. I had a sense of uh, helping the nation, helping the government, because you also hear on the national TV, you also hear people wants to wants to build the country, wants to bring happy, you know, bringing life back to the cities that where we lived. And so, from a young man graduating from high school, you know, what else do you want to do? What there is isn't a greater cause than just that. So my life began from that from that sort of a situation where I graduated from high school and right away joined the military 
or just being an ally to U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And right around that time, the United's mission in Afghanistan had changed. It was from uh, going, fighting directly the, the Taliban or the bad guys to something of counterinsurgency, working with the people, building a state, capacity building, uh, building an army, building a police force. And so uh, the academy I was part of, which was which started in 2007, was primarily focused uh, in helping train the Afghan National Army, but also at the same time, the newly arrived soldiers that were coming into the country. And this was not only U.S. US soldiers, this was coalitions and NATO forces that were coming into Afghanistan. So they would come into our training facilities and in that, in that place, the counterinsurgency training center. And they would get trainings on counterinsurgency materials. And this was a guidelines that was passed along by Pentagon and by the um, state officials in Congress and everyone from the United States that we had to implement as a new strategy for the United States to help to help build a nation that is responsible for addressing the basic needs of Afghan citizens. Fast forwarding a little bit. So what I did was I started as a an ordinary simple individual who was just being an office assistant. And then what happened was I was being used as an interpreter. I was helping with culture. And essentially, I moved on. Uh, I was granted an opportunity to teach and teach Afghan history, teach Afghan culture in front of audience, big classes. And so from there, I kind of moved on and, and tried to help, continue to help that people that had, you know, anything, that had any questions about anything that they wanted to know about Afghan culture. And knowing that I was that I grew up and we had a state in Afghanistan for the entire life. We never went outside the country for anything. So it was an opportunity for me to engage with people that I wanted to learn and, and yet at the same time build a relationship with in, in terms of making sure that I'm giving the best information there is to the people who, wants, who are here helping me or helping my country. And so I guess going back to how I received the Superior Civilian Service Award, was, there was an incident that happened right, after our, uh, right outside our base and so we had to put a team together to go help those that were hit by the IED, um, by the suicide bomber that hit that convoy. And so I was one of those members that volunteered immediately, and I said, I'm going to go and help. So, and then we went up there and, and started helping people, um, whether it was civilians or U.S. soldiers or NATO soldiers. And fortunately, the sad thing about this whole experience was that we had so many people that lost their lives in that process. And, and you know, I was one of those individuals who would go there and help out. So in recognition to that, then, you know, I, I was not only me, but it was a team of us who went and sort of helped out and making sure that we kind of deliver what we wanted to do, not only for the U.S. soldiers, but to Afghan civilians, to the people that we wanted to, them to be there and to know that we're there to protect them. And so I guess um, as a civilian young man, that's, that's where I sort of started my life and I kind of moved on in teaching and, and doing other things. Abdul, thank you so much for your service to our country and for your service to the people of Af Afghanistan. Could you tell us a little bit about what led you to immigrate to the United States and um, the special immigrant visa that you came to the United States through? Yeah, so, you know, when right after 2000, 2008, 2009, beginning of 2009, what happened was my uncle was killed in one of the, one of the provinces in Afghanistan uh, because of his work. And so my family was under this pressure, this fear that was sort of growing into my family that, you know, whether we were doing the right thing, whether it was the right choice that we had, you know, sort of voluntarily um, committed ourselves to helping. But obviously, yes, we were getting some salaries and there was that we were an employee, but we it was a choice that we made to want to make sure that we help like any other citizens in the United States nowadays that are voluntarily wanting to help their nation or their communities. So we did that choice and 
only a few a few years later, a couple of years later, that we learned that this fear is starting to emerge in our home. And that was the idea that when we began questioning whether we made that right choice. And my parents were, we were scared of things. We were not showing our faces to the public. Um, my parents just started saying, you know, sort of hide your identity. Don't tell people you're going to a military base. In fact, carry a backpack, show that you are actually going to a school. If someone asks you, friends and family. So kind of use those sort of, in a way, uh, strategies that's a scapegoating to make sure that you uh, sort of not inform people for the safety of yourself, but also the safety of your family and the loved ones, knowing that we already lost a, a loved one, one of our uncles that we had to, that were, that were killed in that process. And, and it was unfortunate, it was difficult, difficult um, sort of a pill to swallow because we didn't, we, you know, for us, we wanted to help. And for my family, knowing that my brothers were doing the same thing and us. And uh, in 2009, what happened, my oldest brother, who was who is now a U.S. citizen here in, in the United States, he had came to the United States or immigrated to the United States in 2007 or 8 under a process called a special immigration visa. And so in order for you to even qualify for that program, you have to meet the criteria to, 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 make, sure, to make sure for you to apply. And that is to make sure that you have a threats facing your life or your family. Uh, you have worked with the United States government on or behalf of the United States government for some time, at least 12 months. And to make sure that you have a direct contract or you have someone within the United States military forces that are willing to sponsor you to help you immigrate to the United States. And this is not a, a fun thing to do. It was escape for life. It was, it was something that you wanted to go to build a new beginning, a new life, because they could see, those soldiers were literally seeing that, you know, you would go out through convoys, you would just kind of hide your face from the very people that you lived among them. So, you know, imagine that kind of a life where you, you would walk in a neighborhood, but you're not really telling them who you are. And, and what you're doing for life with a professional career. Uh, so that kind of a process started and I began to start thinking about that and knowing that my brother already had immigrated under that process. And my parents were like, you know, I would rather see you farther away but alive rather than seeing you close to me and living in fears or perhaps one day knowing that you're dead or something. So I guess from that aspect, one of the things that I did was I immediately started asking my friends, my friends when I... And remember, my friends were not the... Uh, ordinary typical Afghans anymore. My friends were the U.S. friends that I had in the base. And so I started building relationships and I started asking them, if I initiate that process, would you support me? Would you write me a letter of recommendation saying, yes, I'm going to sponsor Abdul. I will help him when he gets to the United States. Those individuals that have, just like a lot of us in Afghanistan that have left their homes and come into a military base and help, they have left their homes in the United States and come to our country help. So they had sort of showed that commitment to me and my family and, and said, you know, we will, we will do whatever we can. So we initiated that process. After a year and a half or so, the SIV was so slow to getting these people. And there was a lot of criticism on the process too, because people were dying, no one was responding, and, and they were holding the United States government uh, accountable, saying, you know, you had made a promise to protect us, but here I am not being protected, we're being killed. And from that, they opened what's called a COM, COM approval. And they, SIV, I remember getting an email saying, encouraging us, saying that apply for this COM approval, which was an ambassador or the U.S. embassy had to sign off on your package. Then what I had to do, compile all the packages again, send the new application in for approval. And that took me from 2009 to 2012 before I received my approval, uh, before I received my approval. And I remember this because I was no longer with the military, but I was with USAID. 
because I was the only Afghan qualified to teach the district stability framework materials in the native language going out. And I remember being in my home province in Herat, where I received the emails. And I was so excited. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm finally getting there. I called my family and I said, I got the approval. We might be going forward. I immediately filed up some application. I called my sponsor in the United States to say, thank you. And, and here I am. I'm moving to the next step. And from there, it, the process of going through the interviews, I was uh, is, you know, medically screened twice. Me and my wife were screened twice because the first one that they did on us by the time they interviewed us expired. And so they sent us again and those, all those charges were on us, not on anyone else. So we had to go and it was finally, in, I think it was April, if I'm not mistaken, April of 2014, when they called in and said, you know, come over and drop your passport and we will uh, we'll give you the visas. And again, it was a moment of joy. It was a moment of, um, for in many regards, a moment of hope. And from that, from right from that moment, I could feel like I am, I'm, I'm finally beginning to plan for life. I'm beginning to question and I'm beginning to know uh, something greater than myself than just being that selfish me where the concept of an I no longer, no longer was a familiar concept. You're beginning to think about ideas such as we, as a they, and, you know, so the idea because I'm going to go part of this larger community where security, safety perhaps is, not much of a concern as it is today. So I guess from that aspect, that's where we kind of, uh, that's where we began, that's where we went forward. Well, and you said earlier, your process started in 2009 and it was 2014 when you finally immigrated to the US, is that right? Yes, yes. So remember when I first started in, in yeah, you were working with the United States military, there's different styles of different badges that you hold. When I first began working with the United States military, I had a red badge. And that red badge means that you have to be escorted everywhere you go because they don't trust you now. Over the course of one year or two years, finally that red badge turned to a green badge where I was no longer needed to be escorted. They had trusted me enough that I was a loyal and I was trustworthy and, and all of that. And so despite having that green badge, despite knowing that I was going through what's called a biometric system, every six months I was going through medical screening with the military for every six months to make sure that I don't carry any diseases or I am not somehow changing my attitude towards the U.S. military forces or towards their mission, I was getting uh, biometric systems. I was going. I remember the first time that I went, I was so nervous seeing an individual hook up the little chips or the little machines in my arms and, and, and ask me to stand still and not move because those things will mean that you're lying and not to cough. And... And all of those simple things that I was like, what are you doing? I've been working here for, uh, you know, since I was 17 years old. But anyway, that was part of the process. And the reason why I mentioned that, because it's a, because an individual such as myself, and, and there are thousands of us, thousands of SIVs in this country, or perhaps outside, you know, and they're not even here right now, that are going through these processes every single day. But it took me five years to come to United to United States, and I'm not you know I'm not questioning the legitimacy or perhaps the validity of the process. And yes, there's a process; everyone has to go through it. But for someone to go through all of those his screenings prior, because they already they already knew who I was. I had already a history built for myself. I already had a background that they could relate to. People that they could even call my supervisors, my my contract representatives that I had in touch. And I was an individual who was living and sleeping in the same barracks as the U.S. soldiers were. And so uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that 
knowing how difficult it was for me, I could only imagine how could it, how difficult it could be for someone who does not have a history and does have or not working with the United States government, and yet they're running for the same cause. They're running for the same thing for their life, and so they're running for a hope, for a home. They're running for all of those things that I know. I ran when I first, after a couple of years, that I know that fear was emerging in my family, in my home. So once you settled into the U.S., how did you determine you would be going to Syracuse? Well, so remember when I mentioned my brother, my older brother, and yeah. so I had no idea what Syracuse was. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, in fact, the only, the only idea I had about uh, Syracuse was New York. That's the only m- a picture I had in mind, and I was only referring to big towers, big buildings in, in New York. And so when I came into Syracuse, when I when I, my brother came over and picked us up from the airport, and we were driving through downtown, and, and I was like, "Where are the big buildings? And where are?" They? I was immediately shocked by the discipline of traffic. To be honest. <laughs> um, I, uh, and and this is something I and for those who um, hopefully are listening to the conversation and have served or have been in Afghanistan for some time, they know what I'm talking about because there's not much of a discipline in Afghanistan when traffic. And so I was immediately shocked by you're stopping for a red light, you're actually stopping for a stop sign, and and so the the life began from right the, that moment because those simple smallest steps told me enough about life, about told me enough, the life that I was going to build for myself was going to be in accordance to law, in accordance to the disciplines that I have to, everyone is following, that I have to follow the same thing. So I guess from that aspect, uh, I chose to be in New York. I was, you know, when I, when they asked me whether I want to be resettled, whether I know someone, a family member in the United States, and I immediately said yes. My brother was so happy because remember, He's seeing me after five years. Mm-hmm. He left us in Afghanistan. He was the oldest. He was the second in charge in the family. He was right after my father. And so he was, he was like a father 2.0. He was, he was so excited because he knew that he had left an 18-year-old brother in Afghanistan. And now he's on his way to the United States. And so I guess the, the sort of the optimism that was there, the, the love was there. It was, it was a mutual thing for both of us because we were uh, coming together back as a family, the way we used to be, the way the way everything was back when we were growing up. I'm sure yeah. the reunion was, yeah, <laughs> the reunion was so meaningful. Yeah, it was. Your brother again. Like I said, we were, you know, it's so funny now that even I'm thinking about it because it, we were going through all this and my brother was explaining, because he, he's now a U.S. citizen, so he's explaining all this. This is how the lanes, you change lanes. You also, <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? So I'm, I'm this outsider and here he is explaining all these things to me. But, you know, it was, it was, um, it was a, a trip. I don't even know how we actually got from the, the airport to home, but all I know is it was a conversation that I know was messed. Well, and it sounds like your brother, you know, basically giving you automatic cultural orientation. You land, he picks you up, and he's telling you how traffic works in the United States. And now your professional career in the U.S. is working in the field of refugee resettlement. Could you talk about how you found your way into this work and how your experience informs so one of the first things that i did when i first arrived in the united states i was only without a job for about two months when i first arrived and that was 
And a lot of it was due to the holdup of making sure that I have a social security card, my green card was here and a lot of it. So um, one of the first things that I did was I had two priorities when I first arrived and that was a priority for myself. And I know I had priorities for a family, for my wife and others. Uh, so I wanted to get a job. I wanted to move on with my academic life with education and stuff. So um, one of the first things that I did, knowing that I could still with my valid visa, I could still volunteer and I could still engage in the community. So I started volunteering for this agency that are now uh, sort of uh, helped me or hired me. I was just simply doing interpretation, similar work what I was doing in Afghanistan. Culture orientation and culture, becoming an advisor as a culture advisor was not something new and I knew I could do that when I was in, in, in Afghanistan. So it's just a matter of making sure that I know enough to make sure that I transition that knowledge, that information that I have to the next person that is coming through the same paths, the same ways that I came in. So um, it, for me, it was a matter of making sure that I, I learned and observe and do it myself and yet what I can do to process that information, not only as someone who's going through this process himself, but you know, teach to listen and learn to others that are coming in so they have a better start they're not going through the same struggles that I am. So uh, I simply started by simply just volunteering. I remember one of the first family that I that I volunteered to interpret was a mother with two kids. She couldn't speak. She couldn't speak a word of uh, English. And so I went there with a the case manager. I, I remember up to date. So we picked her up from the airport, provided all the meals, and took her to her own home and gave her a basic orientation. And came from there, we moved on. But it, it, it's it's. Uh, for me, it started from there. And then they realized that Abdul is someone, um, I guess, worth keeping. And so they go, oh, Abdul, we, <laughs> we want to offer, um, offer you a job part-time. And, and then it moves on. And here I am running a program of Interfaith. And so I guess from um, from that aspect, I'm, I'm very, very lucky for many people. Honored and I'm glad and, and I can't ask for more, to be honest. Well, out of your work, um, what do you think it's important for listeners to understand about the process of resettlement for refugees? There's there's so much, but one of the first things that I would start is the transition is one of the most difficult things I went through in my life. And I have, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who, who was working with United States military that, that grew up in war, that grew up in, in, in hearing bullets and rockets and suicide bombers and and I wouldn't describe it as hard in the most difficult thing in my life if it wasn't. Because I know what it means to adjust to a new life, to a new city, to a new community. And when I had my daughter, I could just see the struggle, her making friends with the new toys that she had. And so, and it was the same way for me. And I had to establish a connection, establish a network with a group of people that didn't know anything about me. And it's the same, it's the same feeling to, for me towards them in a way. So I had to build community that was not related to me by blood or by tribal lineages or by anything. It was just simply by what I learned later to be the fundamental values that defined America. To me at that point, it was just simply friends stopping by, saying hello, taking us to a grocery shopping. And later I learned that this is what America was built on, this sort of idea. And and so I, all I was doing simply in many regards, I was just cheating. I was copying them and trying to return the favor. One of, that's where simply I got motivated. I continue to do. I am simply moved by this idea of volunteerism in America. And, and this is something that is not in any other countries. And I've probably said this enough in many of my 
This is something to nurture. This is something that that kind of puts America at a different level. The sense of volunteerism, the sense of you know, companionship that exists and help that exists that you could offer people that are in need of help. Because, you know, when, and I, you know, I don't like to remind myself of the memories that I had in Afghanistan. But remember, when you're in that survival phase, you're not thinking about your neighbor. You're not thinking about your community. It's all about you. How could you survive for another day? And, and so for me, kind of it started from there, volunteering, getting involved in community. How could I be part of this community-based organization? How could I help these guys? And what is the what are the skills that I have that I need to offer them? And and so it simply started all from there. And um, like I said, I have managed and I'm, I've been fortunate enough to build a, a, a network, a group of people um, that I know that are not related by blood. And, and I know it's much more stronger. We have, well, you, you might have learned a lot of things from my brother. And then there's, you know, all those things sort of spilt over and it gets wider. And, and the same thing applies to my daughter and the same thing applies to my wife. And so, um, you know, but, but this, is a, this was one of the most difficult transitions we have. And not that I've made many transitions in my life. But the transition of going from a small high school kid to a military style life and the transition from a totally different culture to coming to America was perhaps the most difficult one. And so I, if, I, if I could advise the, the listeners to, to keep that in mind, because when you see that one guy struggling and confused, doesn't know what he's doing, and he can't make sense of things yet, despite being a young man, and he, he, you know, he's, he's so you know, physically able, but, but he just mentally, psychologically, he's not making sense of things. There's a reason why, because he did not grow up in that culture, and it takes time. It takes time for people to adapt, to observe. And I guess from that perspective, if they look at it that way, I promise you it would look at a totally different world than, um, than just simply mischaracterizing individuals or misjudging them by saying they're just this or just that. But I'm just giving you my personal examples. And I know by just working in this field for some time, I know every single person struggles differently. Some uh, priorities are different. Their goals and ambitions are different. And so for me, the ambitions, the goals that I had from education to employment to uh, making sure that my family is safe, we have a car, we're hopefully having a, a roof at the top of our head, those priorities were very important to me and my family. And, and so that's where I began. Well, I want to ask you about creating your community here in the United States and what home has meant to you. But I also, what you said about American volunteerism yeah, and that that impulse that Americans do have. I mean, we have entire volunteer management profession. You know, people really care about volunteering. So I wonder if you could talk about finding your community in the U.S., what home means, and for our listeners, how can they help newcomers feel at ease in their new circumstances? You know, coming into America, I I knew that I, I could see how my home in Afghanistan, where as a child I was growing up, was different versus when I started facing threats to my life. Mm-hmm. Were different. So um, home was not simply about the idea that I have a space, a physical space that I'm living in. Right. Um, and, and so knowing that I come from that kind of a knowledge and background or a, you know lifestyle and, and trying to build a new home in America, it, it was not simply about making sure that I have a roof, roof at the top of my head. Uh, I knew that in order for me to survive, in order for me to start, was that I needed to build a home that is willing, a community that knows me, that are willing to accept, that are willing to talk to me, 
mm-hmm. that are willing to share the mistakes that I have or that I make every day, and that I'm, you know, that I, that they're willing to help me in correcting some of those things. So, um, in many regards, this in creating and creation of that sort of a home, I know those volunteers helped, and a lot of those volunteers helped beca- in in ways because I saw them doing this not for the sake of money. They were doing it for the sake of helping another human being, and but they were also doing it be, to making sure that that um, heritage that existed in America that continued from one generation to the next generation, as far as making sure that the community is protected, everyone is engaged, everyone is involved. It is a, a participatory sort of a uh, community where everyone is involved in decision making, where everybody's voices are heard. To nurture that kind of a notion. Is, is you cannot, in my humble opinion, I don't think you can do it without keeping volunteers involved because everyone you know are not going to have the capacity to be engaged as others. We all can't be engaged in everything at the same at the same capacity, at the same levels. So this is where those individuals that played a key role in my life, you know, I could take high school, for example. I could take just my college, for example. Mm-hmm. I know I could just went up and talk to uh, professors, former faculty members of the universities that I went and I got introduced to, and I just simply talked to them about, you know, help me, guide me, and, you know, talk to me about, you know, because writing essays was not an easy transition from moving from a school life that I, that I finished in 2006 to something that I started back in 2000, late 2014. That transitional period and, and starting the school back in a totally different culture, language, and all that was not an easy transition. So uh, in that regards, the credit goes not to me. The credit goes to those that helped me be where I am or the credit. And I struggle with my English still, but the credit still goes to those that are helping me right now continuously. Because, and for those who are listening, and, and yes, I, I, yes, I immigrated to the United States in 2014, but I'm still transitioning. I'm still trying to adapt, trying to learn, trying to understand what am I going to do for my life, for my family's life. So this is the kind of uh, transition we're talking about. It's not a matter of days. Cultural orientation does not end in just matter of holding two, three sessions or just simply a meeting that you talk to them. It's not a matter of one-day dialogue. Right. It is a matter that exists in a, as a, a process that everyone goes through, but you know, and, and you continue to go through even when you're naturalized, when, even when you're uh, because that's how that is perhaps the most important thing, or perhaps the the nicest thing about American life that it evolves. You learn more, and you continue to learn more to build that American goal for yourself, to build that goal that you want to do, because there's no limits. There's nothing telling you to stop when you set the goal. Stop. This is it. You got to focus on that. You can change that. There's nothing. Nobody's stopping you from that. And and so I can tell you there are tons of things that I came up with when I first arrived, uh, such as owning a BMW, such as owning a Mercedes. <laughs> and then I learned that yes, there were there were nice things to have, but they're not the most important thing to have. Mm-hmm. There are other things that I needed to have. So. We all come up with that goals. Yes, I did have a vision of America by watching Hollywood movies, and I didn't realize that the vision that I had built for America in my head was somewhat different than what I am facing the realities nowadays. So I guess when you're looking at that transition, for those that are listening, I, I humbly encourage them to, to understand that 
I am, as, as someone who have lived as a 17-year-old among U.S. soldiers and, and gained enough knowledge to come over and be in a little advanced level of adapting to American society, I am still adjusting. And so from that aspect, it's a, it's a much difficult process uh, and it does not happen overnight. Well, and now that you've been in the U.S. since 2014, how has the meaning of home changed for you? Do you Would you still call Afghanistan home, but then do you also feel that Syracuse is home for you? You know, I, I'm somewhat enlightened by my transition in many regards. And, hmm. and a lot of this enlightenment comes in that, you know, I used to think of myself as the only Afghan. Somehow, um, I have developed a global perspective. I have developed that I belong to the humanity and, and to the people that, you know, you know, yes, maybe I don't, I'm not related to them because they're not my brothers or sisters, but somehow they are. And somehow they are connected to me because we all share similar goals in many regards. We ate similar food. We, we, we have dreams for our family, for our kids. So the home that I left behind in Afghanistan was a home that I had to. And the home that I built in the United States was also a home that I must and I had to. And I'm continuing to build that home. So in many aspects, both of those homes, despite the differences that exist in terms of my abilities, in terms of the lack of freedom and flexibility that I have at home in America, is, is in many regards making me feel like the home that I have here is much safer, mm. is much, much accepting, is, is that I could still share an opinion and not be judged by it. Uh, I could still criticize. I could still write an op-ed, or I still I can write an article in the Syracuse.com and share an opinion uh, about whatever. Mm-hmm. And and despite not receive threats about why. Mm-hmm. And so having that freedom and living in that kind of an environment or a home, I I know I know it it means different. I know it means different. But I also have to confess though, and it is it is I have to also acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. A fear, yet again, a fear is starting to emerge in my home. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and this is happening in the recent years, in the recent months and recent year. A fear is starting to emerge that the very country that offered us opportunity, that offered us justice, hope, protection, and safety, is the one questioning the legitimacy of their existence in a way. So as a Muslim, as a Muslim, I, I, you know, I, I'm not an American yet, but as a Muslim, you American, perhaps, uh, that, that fear is making us question our presence. And remember, I am, I am, I am not, I'm no stranger to America. I am the person who America, I stood by America when they were fighting the enemy yeah. in Afghanistan. I'm no stranger. And so yet for a person not to be that strange, and to yet be enough part of the society or American society, and yet have that feeling that you are questioning that the growth of this fear, in my opinion, um, is, is, is in many aspects demoralizing. It's, it's pushing us to a corner that we, don't, we do not belong. I sometimes even question, and perhaps this is a conversation at large, we at family question ourselves whether the, the fear that we left behind or somehow chasing us down back in 2017 mm. in America. And, and so, um, and, and from, from that perspective, I, I feel like this is definitely home for us and, and that I'm, I'm, I'm building a life here. I'm building a, you know, a, a background that you know, people such as you and others 
when you hear the name Abdul, you'll be like, yes, I know this guy, and yes, I know this individual. And it's likewise for my community members in the local, in the city where I live. I want to make sure that if they hear the word Abdul or a word immigrant or refugee or something, and if they have my picture in mind, at least there's one or two words that it sticks in their head that tells them that this is not an easy overnight transition. And, and finding that home, and, and for many, for many, um, for many regards and for many aspects that I see, I am yet defining what that home would look like as finally. And for this argument could be made for anyone living in America, that what is the final home? But for me, knowing that I come in, that I, I'm not in, attached to physical things and I'm not attached to a, a, a particular house, but knowing that I come from that kind of a livelihood, a lifestyle, I know that my home it starts and finish with it, with the community, with those volunteers that I'm talking about. Because mm-hmm. I know this home that I've developed right now so far would not be possible without their help. Well, Abdul, we are so we're so honored to talk to you and for how candid you are and how truthful you are about speaking about the difficulty of the transition, about creating home for yourself. And I want to say for for EMM, we are so inspired by you and other new Americans, and we want to work as hard as we can and build a movement to make sure that everyone who's coming to this country can feel welcome and has the ability to create home. Uh, no, I, I am just honored of my, my deepest gratitude to EMM, to the national agencies that are working day in, day out, every day to help out these people. But this is not about me. This is not about EMM, Episcopal Migration Ministries, and any other agency for that matter. It's about all of us. I strongly believe that when we come together, we grow. And when we grow, we know we're resilient. We're stable. We are protected. We know more. There's less fear. There's less chances of misunderstanding one another. And the moment you are apart, I promise you. And if you don't know, I can, I can go to millions of examples in Afghan history where the city of Kabul was divided among misunderstood group of people. And so we've, in all of us, and, and here I am trying to give a little two cents, a little two cents of my story that might resonate with some, um, but, you know, hopefully we'll shed a light on, on something that a lot of people might not know. And so um, with that, for that, I am deeply honored and and, and thankful for for all this opportunity. Thank you, Abdul. Yes, thank you so much. Friends, we hope you tune in next week. Uh, as, As you all know, if you're following the calendar, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and we're truly honored and moved that Presiding Bishop Michael Curry We'll be offering the reflection next week. So please do make sure you listen to our Palm Sunday episode. Thank you all for being with us today. Uh, before we go, some reminders and announcements. And as I said earlier in this episode, our Love God, Love Neighbor training is coming up and the registration deadline is tomorrow. So you're, look at your calendar. Love God, Love Neighbor is in Atlanta, May 2nd through 4th. And registrations are due tomorrow, March 19th. Learn more at EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash L-G-L-N, as in Love God, Love Neighbor. Be a voice of welcome for newly arrived refugees through a virtual gift for friends or family. Show your support to our new neighbors with a tax-deductible gift that provides security and comfort during the first few months of transition. 
You can order online at episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash gifts hyphen for hyphen welcome or make a general donation. We have a strong, healthy network to resettle refugees and provide the programs and services they need for a solid foundation here in the United States. Your donations help us make that work possible. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 51555. Our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Mawinda Ikondo. Find his music at AbrahamMawindaMusic.com. A huge thanks goes out to Abdul Sabor for joining us for such a wonderful conversation. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home.